0: All right. Good morning, everybody. You know what I like about combining two services? I get to preach twice as long. So, <laughs> there's one out there that appreciates that. That's great. All right. Well, let me let, allow me to uh, continue on with a little humor. Uh, a while back, my dad—he'll uh, be 93 uh, this year. Um, he. He fell, and he smacked the back of his head on the corner of a table. Yeah, ouch, ouch. And just so you don't worry, the table's fine. Uh, there are a few things harder, few things in the world that are harder than my dad's head, but that uh, oak table is one of them. At least that was the humor I was sharing with him. Dad ended up with five stitches on um, the back of his head, and he was a little out of it for a few days. Um, uh, he's all good now, but he was uh, joking about being old and kind of being incapacitated uh, by that. And with his sense of humor, he said, he said something like this. He goes, you know, I wasn't at death's door, but I could see it from where I was. Well, uh, we're picking up from where we were last week in this series uh, and to encourage each other, to make Jesus known. Uh, we know this. We need to be clear with ourselves and with others, who Jesus is, and not shy away from sharing that, whether in Iowa or in Uganda. Amen? Amen. Uh, And our lives need to model this joyful, obedient submission to Jesus, uh, obedient submission of our time and our treasure and our talents. Uh, This morning, we are continuing in this Make Jesus Known through 1 John uh, chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, turn to, turn to 1 John 1. Uh, my dad's joke about uh, seeing the end may well have been uh, the Apostle John's situation. Uh, church history and tradition don't carry the reliability that Scripture does, and only the Apostle James' martyrdom is recorded in Scripture. Uh, but history Uh, seems to indicate that many of the 12 apostles uh, died in the persecution of Christians between the mid-60s to the mid-90s under uh, emperors Nero and Domitian. From Tertullian's writing from the Fox's Book of Martyrs and a few other resources, it looks like the apostle John was kind of like the last apostle standing. John wrote his gospel, the three epistles, and Revelation, most likely around um, uh, the middle of the um, uh, eighth decade, around 85 A.D. Extra-biblical sources indicate that John lived his last years in exile on the island Patmos, uh, living and writing into 90-something A.D. Can you imagine that? As he penned 1 John which is what we're looking at today uh, he might have looked around him found himself alone out of all the apostles all of Jesus' personally trained messengers the 12 apostles maybe he was the only man left alive who had a personal intimate association with the son of god all through his ministry through his death through his resurrection and his ascension back to heaven Maybe he was now the sole remaining, handpicked eyewitness by God incarnate, an eyewitness to the life and the ministry of Jesus to which he refers in this epistle. Imagine that, the last apostle standing. To me, that stirs up a resilient courage in my heart. I think it was back in Second Samuel where David's 30 mighty men, are identified and, and a number of their deeds, their military valor, their hand-to-hand uh, combat is recorded. These 30 mighty men fought with David to protect Israel. And there were these three mightiest of the mighty. One of them killed 80, 800 men with his spear in one battle. Another who fought victoriously for so long, so hard that his hand froze to his sword handle. He had to peel his fingers off of his sword. And another who went into battle with other Israelites, but they ran away and they left him alone to fight who knows how many Philistines all by himself. At the end of that battle, he stood victorious in the middle of that field of beans, a field strewn with the bodies of the enemies of King David and Israel. And while the Apostle John uses the pen and papyrus as his weapons, he too is fighting. The last Apostle standing is fighting for truth against antichrist, against false teachers. John may have been known as the Apostle of Love, and rightly so, but he was resolute. When it comes to battling against lives and evil, battling for the hearts and minds of fellow believers, John is unbending and he is unyielding. John is so committed to the truth, so concerned to protect believers from error that there's very little ambiguity in this epistle. What John says in this epistle has a ring of clarity and certainty to it. Just a quick glance through a few verses in the first chapter, we find statements that come with such absoluteness. For example, chapter 1, take verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie. We lie and do not practice the truth. There's no wiggle room there. Verse 7, he says, but but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, uh, his son, cleanses us from all sin. No exceptions in that passage either. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Plain, simple, certain. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's absolute. That's absolutely true. Verse 10 if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. More hard truth. And this epistle, Is like this all the way through, many point-blank, clear, and certain statements. Our sermon title this morning is Proclaim Life. And by way of an outline for our passage this morning, we see in the first four verses that John, out of his informed faith and his experiences with Christ, he wants us to do this. He wants us to proclaim the truth of Jesus, and he wants wants us to proclaim the fellowship and the joy of Jesus. Allow me to start at the end of our passage and just say this. Pure, unhindered fellowship with God and fellow believers is the source of full and complete joy. Again. Pure, unhindered fellowship with God and fellow believers is the source of full and complete joy. That's where John's going in these first four verses. Now, the purest fellowship, the fullest joy, awaits us in heaven. But through Jesus, what we can experience here on earth is more amazing than anything that this world has to offer. Now, I'm not saying that full and complete joy in this life is God's goal for believers. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, neither joy nor suffering in this life are God's goal for his family, though undoubtedly we'll experience some of both. The goal for the family of God can scarcely be improved upon from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which states this, the chief of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, orienting us to 1 John, uh, we don't know the exact identity or the location of the intended recipients of this letter, just that they are believers. Church tradition connects uh, John with the Roman province of Asia, uh, modern western Turkey, so maybe the readers live there. From this map, the churches uh, John mentions in Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3 seem to affirm this, uh, especially Ephesus. First John was written to equip these believers against antichrists, false teachers, who primarily denied the physical reality of the Incarnation, who denied that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, denied that knowing and believing Jesus through his teaching as the apostles did, they said that was insufficient. They denied that it was sufficient for salvation. In summary, the Antichrist, these false teachers were neglecting Jesus. They were denying his deity or his humanity. They were denying his messiahship and thus his knowledge and his authority. These false teachers uh, now were looking to their own intellect and their private spiritual experiences. They said lifted them above Jesus, lifted them and taught them higher than Jesus. Obviously, conflict resulted Uh, from their imagined superiority, as these people had become elitists in their own view. So John fought that, and he also used his letters to direct others who are contending with these spiritual elitists, these antichrists, to not contend with them sinfully or out of anger, but rather interact with them in truth and grace. And we're going to, all we're going to cover this morning is the first four verses. But as I read, listen really closely because I want you to compare these four verses to the first five verses of John's gospel. So first four verses of the epistle, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our own hands concerning the word of life, the life was made So with that kind of resting in our minds, uh, here are the first five verses of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it now here are some similar phrases that you probably put together in listening to both of those gospel phrases include this in the beginning with god in the beginning the first first john the epistle has that which was from the beginning gospel phrases include was the word and the word was god and the word uh, was with god and the word was god the epistle has concerning the word of life. Gospel phrases include, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The epistle has, in the word of life, the life was made manifest to us to proclaim to you the eternal life. So by comparing these, we can see John's talking about Jesus in very similar terms, in his epistle and in his gospel. Now in verses 1 and 2, there are also, these phrases we have heard, we have seen, we have touched, we have looked upon our own, with our own eyes and touched with our own hands. The we that John is referring to here is at least the 12 apostles. John's claiming apostolic authority here as he uses these phrases, and there's two reasons for that. First, is to give significant eyewitness testimony that these things really happened. I mean, a few things speak to the verifiable reality of something as much as a respected, firsthand witness. For instance, have you ever been maybe frustrated with, something, with what someone is saying in a situation, situation, and you ask them, you know, like, what do you know? I've done that. And if I hear them say... I know because I was there. I know because I heard. I know because I touched. Well, that pretty well shuts me up. Or at least it raises my trust in them a notch or two. I mean, if I trust a person's character to not be lying to me, I'm like, okay, my bad, you really do know. If I trust this person's ability to correctly perceive the meaning of what they saw and what they saw happening and why it happened, then I'm like, okay, man, shut my mouth. You do know. You understand. Second reason John gives these phrases is to prove that the closest uh, to Jesus knew him to be a real human being. Those that were side by side with him knew him to be a real human being. One of the lies that was being spread about Jesus back then was that he was just a spirit. Uh, He wasn't really human. He didn't have a human body. He he wasn't a real physical person. These phrases from a respected eyewitness convincingly declare, they proclaim, Jesus, he who is the eternal life, that which was from the beginning, Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God, was fully human too. He wasn't an apparition. This is the incarnation of God. God took on flesh. Jesus did physical work. Jesus sweated. He breathed. He hungered. He, uh, he ate and was satisfied. He felt joy and pain. Jesus was and is very real. Let's look at some phrases. We have heard. Well, what did they hear from Jesus? They heard him command water to become wine. Uh, They heard him command and cast out demons. They heard him heal and forgive the sins of a paralytic. They heard him silence vengeful accusers, calling them sons of Satan. We looked at that last week. He says, Your daddy is a devil. They heard him cry out, it is finished from the cross just before he died. Well, what about the phrase, we have seen with our own eyes? What did they see Jesus do? They saw Jesus heal every single person that he touched. They saw him walk on water through a raging sea. They saw him die on the cross and they saw him resurrected. They saw him ascend back into heaven from which he had come. What about that phrase, and we have looked upon, meaning what did they perceive about Jesus from what they saw him do? Well, they understood that his healing illness, his healing illnesses as him being sovereign over every disease. They understood his his exorcism, his driving out of evil spirits, as him powerfully commanding demons to do exactly what he wishes. They understood him calling fish into their nets as him being ruler over the animal kingdom. They understood him speaking peace to the storm as him being king over all creation. They saw him allow himself to be crucified. And understood that he did it to pay the debt of wrath for all of sin in order that those who would believe would be saved. And finally, we have, uh, we have touched with our own hands. Uh, what did they touch on Jesus? Most notably, they touched Jesus' resurrected and glorified body. They felt the holes in the healed hand uh, healed flesh, where the nails impaled and the spear pierced verse 2 John circles back to the incarnation in a broader more glorious way uh, saying the life the one who is eternal life this echoes the gospel of John where Jesus said of himself I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me no wiggle room there John's proclaiming, and he can't help but proclaim, this is Jesus. In him, God was with us, walked among us, and died for us. Amen? Oh, I think the frostbite's got our tongue. (laughs) In him, um, God walked among us. He died for us. Amen? Amen. Amen? Amen. This is the truth. These phrases are being proclaimed to the listeners back then and now. God Became flesh. John says, we saw, we heard, we perceived, we, we touched him. Verse 2 says that we, the apostles, were commissioned to proclaim the message of eternal life. Why? What's the goal? What's the outcome? What's the whole purpose of John's life? What's the whole purpose of Jesus training the apostles to go out? It's verse 3. He says in verse 3, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that so that you too may have fellowship with us and fellowship with the Father, with this, His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy, our joy may be complete. He's saying, we want you all to share in this fellowship. Only then will all of our joy be complete. That's what this is about. God is not some infinite, unknowable force. He is a God you can have a personal, you can have personal fellowship with, and through him have fellowship and joy with other believers. So, what are those? What are joy? Or what is what are joy and fellowship? What do they actually look like? How can they be ours? Verse three, we see that we see the word for fellowship, and it's koinonia, meaning partnership, partnership with close relationship, with a close bond. It expresses a a both ways interaction, two sided relationship, one that gives and receives. It's more like participation with, impartation between. Fundamentally, it's a partnership and not only about relational connection. Now, often we talk about fellowship today, uh, and we use it almost exclusively in the sense of kind of socializing together. That's not primarily what it means, although it does include it. Fellowship is being linked together in common life. It's not just about social exercise or social engagement. So the way we understand that, uh, well, that, that, uh, that this preaching of the gospel, it invites faith, and a person who puts their faith in Christ enters into a real partnership with him and other believers. It's a real sharing of life. First Corinthians 1.9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is partnership under lordship. Partnership under lordship. So when you were saved, you were called into participation, a partnership with Christ, our Lord. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. There is resurrection power in that kind of life. There is a, that is a cruciformed life. That's a partnership, a fellowship. Under lordship. And here in verse 3, we see that, that this fellowship is with the Father, with His Son, Jesus Christ, and with other believers. To be in fellowship with God, to be saved, to have eternal life, means that you must know and believe in the Jesus that John knows and believes in. You can't come with your own ideas about what you feel God is like or who you think God is like. John is saying there's absolutely no allowance for that. Jesus, the Son of God, is your Savior only if you understand and believe in Him the way the Apostle John and the rest of Scripture proclaims Him to be. Only then is pure unhindered fellowship with Him and other believers possible. And only then can you experience complete joy. Let's look at that joy. The Greek word for joy there is kara. Allow me to give you a couple of phrases to help define it. I, I, I summarize it. I define it like this. Joy is a deep delight in the internal person of God and his provision regardless of circumstances. Another author says this. He says, uh, joy is the settled assurance that that God uh, is in control of my life. It's the quiet confidence that his eternal good will prevail and the determined choice to praise him in every situation. That's joy. Here's another. Joy is the sharing of an abiding spirit-led feeling of hopeful goodness in our soul. Brought about by realizing the glory of God in his word, in his people, and in the world. Now, obviously, complete joy is not based on any circumstances, but rather our joyful dependence and obedience to the God of all circumstances. The picture in Psalm 1 is a a great image of joy. First three verses of it go like this. Blessed, deeply happy, joyful. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight, joy, is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The blessedness, the joy of a person comes not from the guidance of this fallen world, but from the truths of God. Finding delight, finding joy, and learning and obeying God's word is pictured as a a tree here, rooted in the life-giving stream of water, which is the truth of God that they continuously meditate on, draw on. The result of this complete joy is a season of fruitfulness that is unhindered by drought. Meaning difficulties will come. There are seasons of difficulty uh, as they're part and parcel to a fallen world. So this is not saying it's just smiles for miles. But there is joy for days. A deep, abiding delight in God to those who know, believe, and obey. So, back in 1 John, verses 1 through the first half of verse 3, John's saying, I'm telling you what we saw because I want you to know what we know and I want you to experience what we experienced with Jesus. And by the time you get down to verse 4, he's really not talking about just the apostles anymore. He's talking about all believers. Therefore, he says, everything I'm writing to you is to get us joy. Not just you, but all of us. John's joy will not grow. It will not grow unless his spiritual brothers and sisters' joy is growing. And that's true for us as well. John may be the last one, but he's not an individualist. Contrary to our American culture, there's really no such thing as an individualistic Christianity. John is saying, the things I'm telling you about, the things I want you to understand here, is because I want all of us to have that fullness of joy, complete joy. My joy will increase as your joy increases what John is saying here is that there is a connection between believers. There's a connection between Christian hearts. There is a connection. It is impossible for us to go to grow complete in joy on our own, individually. Pastor Tim Keller, late Pastor Tim Keller, he points this out too. I use a couple of his thoughts this morning, and here's one of them. He says, if you work only on your own spiritual life, not sharing or inviting others to share, if you think your spiritual life is a private thing and you don't talk to others about your faith, if you're working out your faith on your own, Keller says, that's really impossible. You're fooling yourself. John's main point is that you can have complete joy, but the implication is that his joy Your joy will not increase by itself. It must be our joy. As I close this morning, the implication of what John said, uh, that he was writing these things so that our joy may be complete, that means that for the body of Christ, our joy is incomplete. It's incomplete when other believers are not experiencing this pure, unhindered fellowship with God and other believers, not experiencing it with us. So there is a selflessness to living life in which we desire others to have fellowship and joy in partnership with us. There's sacrifice, there's selflessness in order for that to happen. And John's fighting the good fight of faith, equipping and encouraging and serving others, even though he looks around and he realizes that he's alone. He's the last apostle standing. Now, some of us here may not know what it's like to be the last one of something. Maybe a few of us here do. But even if you are the last one or the only one of whatever or the uh, the la- or in the last or only season of whenever, make it one of truth that speaks and partners and shares joy with others. Let's deeply desire, let's make every effort to walk with others, but also be courageously willing to stand alone for them if need be. That means we, we don't candy coat everything. Jesus didn't. John certainly didn't. But we're fighting the lives of the evil one. That's who we're fighting. We're fighting him for the lives of everyone that God asks us to engage. So let's humbly, I like that qualifier, in humility. We need to help others rightly understand how to live together in the beauty and the sacrifice of eternal life that Jesus offers. That's what I mean by let's proclaim life. So whether it's your last semester at school or your last year at your job or you're the last member of your family or it may be the last time you speak to someone, feel that time, that last time, only time or not. Fill that next time with the light and the life of the gospel who is Jesus. He alone is the word of life. He alone is eternal life. So proclaim him. He was from the beginning. Proclaim him from the beginning to to the end. First of all, to yourself every day. That's a great application for us. Maybe we do that with the urgency that this could be your last day. whereas my father joked, you could see it from where you are. In these next few moments, maybe even through the rest of this week, ask yourself, how can you deepen the fellowship and the joy that you have with God and other believers and find that next step? Remove the reluctance. Push through the obstacles that stand between you and the life that the one who is eternal life has already promised you. And we know that the kingdom of God is not just about us. We're all apostles. We're all sent ones. Sent ones to our generation, to future generation, who must proclaim Jesus to others with Jesus' own words. I am the way. The truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No wiggle room. So also, ask what you could do or share with others to start or deepen their fellowship and joy with God and with other believers. Be a new you in the new year. Find the courage Share the truth. Live the life of beauty and sacrifice as you follow Jesus. Let's deeply desire to to walk with others, and if needed, be courageously willing to stand alone for them as we move forward proclaiming Jesus and proclaiming life. Let's pray. Father, I'm not sure... um, what it is that you are doing in each of our lives. But my just brief time with Grace Church, you're, you are doing a new work. You're continuing great and good things that you've already instilled in the life of this church, but you're doing new things as well. You're preparing your church here at Grace for its new lead pastor. And Father, we're uh, we're a season away from that still. But we anticipate that. But we're also engaging what you've called us to do now. Proclaim life to ourselves. Call the best out in us and the best out in each other and share eternal life with others. That they too may be able to experience your son in a way that darkness could never enter into them again never discourage them again and we ask all that in his name Christ's name amen